If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 6. We'll start in verse 22 today. As we look at John, we see the reminder of this gospel that is pointing us to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh who comes and tabernacles. He sets up a tent among his people. And he's face to face, fully God, fully man with his creation. And he lives and invites people to watch him and work with him and watch how he does things. And in this chapter that we've been in for the last couple weeks, and we'll spend two more weeks finishing this chapter, we see two signs happen to authenticate who Jesus is. And the first is the feeding of the multitudes of 5,000 family units from a little boy's loaves and fish. His little lunch feeds a multitude, maybe upwards of 20,000 people. And then we see Jesus, if you remember last week, if you are with us, we see Jesus is the one that dismisses these crowds, and as they've tried to make him king by force, he dismisses them. He says, it's time to go, and he goes up to a mountain by himself to pray, and he, he sends the disciples at his instruction to get in the boat and go to the other side, onward to Capernaum. And as the crowd leaves, and as he prays for the Father, the Father helps him see and draws his attention to his disciples struggling on the sea. And, and so around 3 a.m. at the fourth watch, Jesus goes on an early morning stroll across wind and waves in a windstorm. And they get to the other side, and now our text picks up the next day. As we look at this passage, my aim for this message, and every time I teach is this, is that I don't want you to be enamored or frustrated with my teaching. Both are possible. But I, I do want us to be literate in Scripture. I want you to walk away going, I can't believe that's in the Bible. I need to go read that for myself. There's a, a Bible literacy that you would understand and grow, and, and, and then in that literacy that you become gospel fluent and fluent in what the gospel is for yourself so that you could dispense that gospel for yourself in the places that you live, work, and play. That you could be reminded of the good news and share the good news in your gospel fluency, your scripture fluency. My, my aim is also that you would see that these are real people in a real time with real struggles, very similar yet different with the struggles that we have. So many years I looked at these texts and it was so dry and there was no life in them. Paul was just a character, but he had no life to him. He was 2D instead of 3D. These Jews that are antagonistic to Jesus were just, okay, I got through my quiet time. But I hope to tell the story again so that you could see it and fall in love with Scripture and then consequently fall in love with the God that Scripture is pointing to. That you learn to love them on your own, not all in my quiet time or Ryan's or Steve's or anybody else's, but your own. And so that's the aim this morning. Anytime we, we look at texts like this, there can be a disconnect. We don't live in first century Israel. We have smartphones and jobs and we're wearing tennis shoes, not sandals, and we're not walking around the Sea of Galilee. We're going to Moonlight and T Street and et cetera, et cetera. And we live in houses 
with air conditioning. Well, some of you don't have air conditioning. I'm sorry for that. It's been a hot week. And we have excess. And a disconnect can happen when we look at Scripture like this because today, Jesus gets into a dialogue about bread. And in a carb-conscious community, bread is a hard one maybe for us to grasp. We don't necessarily have a staple as the American diet, maybe sugar and coffee. No offense to those drinking sugar and coffee this morning. In Asia, we go, well, clearly it's rice. In other countries, it's pasta. But for first century, it's Israel, it's bread. For, for us, like in my family, we did 10 years of a paleo lifestyle, so we rejected bread altogether. I've gone out to lunch with a couple of you this week, and it's like, do I get rice? No, I'll get cucumbers to substitute the rice. It's like, that's a substitute? That's disgusting, but go ahead. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get the protein style this week. No thanks to the free bread this morning. Trying to up my protein intake. Some of us are intermittent fasting, so we haven't even eaten yet, so the idea of talking about bread this morning is not very fun. We avoid it, or we have excess of it. You go to a grocery store, and there's so much bread on the shelf that it's overwhelming. So if you have conversations like in my house, you grab bread, you come home, and your wife says, did you read the ingredients? And they said, it said bread. (laughs) Well, you got the wrong one. I tried my best. We avoid or there's abundance. But for first century Israel, the average person is working so that 80 to 90% of their income goes to just surviving and eating bread that day. We may not have context for it or or nothing that can readily come to mind, but as I was studying for this message, my daughter was at cheer practice, and I was sitting and studying in this cafe that's at her school, and uh, they were doing a food drive. And there was lines of people in the heat waiting for boxes of food that were being towed, and I said, oh, it's still happening. People are still in need of sustenance and sustainability, Then it made me think about bread lines. Do you guys remember bread lines? Here's a picture of bread lines. Maybe your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents, depending on your age, during the Great Depression on our soil, were standing in line for hours to just get a little bit of free bread. Fast forward to 2020, you guys remember a thing called the COVID pandemic? All of a sudden, people are unemployed and not able to work and provide for themselves. And the average American, over 40% of the average American, if a $400 crisis came into their life, they couldn't live and sustain that blow, $400. So you had pictures like this. It looks like a parking lot. But that was Texas in 2020. That is about the number of people that Jesus fed in the beginning of John chapter 6. It's about five to 6,000 cars and family units represented there. And they're waiting in line upwards of 12 hours to just get some food. There can be a disconnect because we have abundance or avoidance. We, we can forget these images pretty quickly, at least I can. And they become just noise in the background. And yet for first century Israel, the fact that Jesus fed them was a big deal. 
They weren't sure. There was a food insecurity that came that they weren't sure how they were going to get their next meal. And so the fact that this guy, Jesus, comes and feeds them loaves and fish leaves them wanting more. And so there's a great crowd that comes for miracles, and now there's a smaller crowd that comes to Jesus in chapter 6, verse 22, because they're curious, and their appetites have been wet. They're, they're full now from loaves and fish, and now they're saying, Jesus, it's the next day, we're ready for more. They're ready for some political leader to come and uprise and take over Rome and make things better. And the disconnect of not living under Roman oppression and not having food insecurity for most of us is that we can not empathize or relate to the story that we're about to read. And yet I hope that you see the common thing that we all long for. Safety. Security. Stability some form of sustenance to make things right and fill the void of life, the hunger and the cravings that can come. And Jesus is going to address all of those in these next moments. So read with me now, John chapter 6, verse 22. The next day, meaning the day after he's fed everybody and walked on water, the crowd, smaller crowd, had stayed on the opposite side of the shore of the lake, realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus did not enter it with his disciples. They remember he dispersed them on his own and sent the disciples at his command to get in the boat and go to the other side. But that Jesus had gone away alone, verse 23, then some boats on the Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So they're searching for Jesus, not again out of faith and, oh my goodness, the, the one that fed the 5,000, he's the son of God, is, is John is writing and intending us to see and draw our hearts and attention to it. This guy gave us a free meal. Let's go find him again. We want to make this guy king because maybe he's the Messiah. Let's go find him. So they came with their own, an agenda and interests, and most of that was materialistic agenda to Jesus make life better in this moment. Give us the next free meal. Do what you did again. And so they go to him in Jesus' hometown now where his family lives, and they find Jesus and they begin this dialogue about bread in a synagogue. You can read in verse 59 that we find that Jesus has this whole discourse about bread in a synagogue in Capernaum. And true to fashion, Jesus does what I hate that he does. He doesn't answer the question that they ask here in a minute. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side, they asked him, Rabbi, everybody say Rabbi. When did you get here? Weird question. I would have probably asked, how did you get here? We were all here. We saw you disperse people. There's only one boat that went to the other side. How in the world did you get here? We didn't see you. Anybody? Crowd? Anybody see this guy? No. How did you get here? When did you get here? And they call him rabbi, but what transpires is, rabbi, the good teacher, we're ready to learn what you have to say and verify that is true and come and follow under your teaching, rabbi. But as D.A. Carson rightly says, it's a beautiful quote, he says, they address him as rabbi, betraying their own confusion and uncertainty. 
They acknowledge him as a teacher, though they are about to dispute his teaching. They clamor for him as the king, though they understand little of the nature of his reign. They're about a materialistic, temporal kingdom. How do you make my life, Jesus, better now? And what Jesus does is not address that at all. As the God who sees, not only external, but sees beyond the question and the need behind the need, goes to address that question that they don't voice. Goes to dispel all mystery to say, this is the teacher that I am. I'm the great teacher. This is the king. I'm the, I'm the king of kings that I am. And this is the way the kingdom works. And so as he does, he bypasses their question in verse 26. And he says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. The crowd at the beginning of the chapter has come because they've seen the signs and the wonders and they've heard the fame of Jesus growing and the popularity of Jesus growing. He's popular and polarizing all at once. And they come to see, and we see that even some missed the miracle and got to the side where he fed everybody late, and now they've missed it, got into boats in search of the next meal, in search for the tangible, temporal, materialistic benefits that could come from Jesus. And Jesus says, you only came because you're full, and you think there's another free meal. At least this group before came for signs and curious about that, and maybe faith transpires in there, but you've come for a second helping. And so, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval, You're working for this temporal fix. You've labored so much that you just got in a boat and crossed miles to just coming. And in that labor, you come to find something that satisfies for a moment. Already you've ate and yet you're hungry again. But the bread that I want to tell you about is one that leads to eternal life. This one lasts for a moment, but there's another bread to come that gives eternal life. And it's dispensed by the Son of Man who gives it freely and willingly and lavishly. And on him, the Father has put a seal of approval. It's similar language if you've read Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we see that for the believer who's become the new creation in Christ, that, that a seal, of the, king, the king's signet ring, seals us with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the, the line of demarcation to say that uh, this is mine, this has been approved for heaven, and there's an inheritance that awaits. And in a different seal of approval on the Son, from the Father, it's ownership, it's authentication, it's a provenness. This is the one I've sent, my only begotten. There's no one like him. He's set apart. He's altogether otherly and different. 
And he's the one that gives eternal life. He's the one that holds the keys to the satisfaction and sustenance that you're longing for. And on him, I have my seal of approval. And their mind still on bread and their mind still on law goes to this. What works must we do? What must we do to do the works God requires? Verse 28. Jesus, there's this bread and there's eternal life attached to it. That sounds good. Sounds like you got a better bread and a better product. The one the day before was pretty subpar, if we're honest, but we're full at least. So what do we have to do to get this bread that the Son of Man dispenses? Is there more law to follow? There's 613 law, so is there now 614? Tell us what we have to do to earn and achieve and work towards to get this bread. And and Jesus says, oh, you, you missed it all together. You still have your mind on this temporal bread that will fill your stomachs. And you still have your mind on it as if you have some effort in the game that achieves. But verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe. Everybody say believe. To believe in the one he has sent. A simple gospel that Jesus communicates. It's it's not complex at all. If you've ever made bread, it's actually not a complex process. It's just a few simple ingredients. The activation process might take a little bit, and you can mess that up. The baking, under-baking, under-proofing, that can take a little bit. But God does all that. This bread that I'm talking about, God does all that. He does it perfectly and orchestrates it perfectly. And what you do is just get to believe and then receive this beautiful meal. No amount of striving, no matter your heritage, no matter your intellect, no matter your background, nothing you do can earn or achieve this bread that leads to eternal life. Simply believe in the one that was sent. Paul will echo this later on in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that man is justified through faith, not by meeting the requirements of law. It, it's faith. It's faith in the one and only begotten Son that leads to this eternal life, that leads to the true satisfaction and heart longing that you have. There's no better sustenance. There's no better sustainer. There's no better nutrition. There's no better life that comes except through one that the Father has sent. And the work required to receive that is to believe. And so they ask him, verse 30, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? I'm sorry, did you forget about yesterday? Did did you forget about the loaves and the fish that just fed everybody? And there was 12 baskets full left over. There was so much excess that food in abundance till everybody was full and there was leftover. It came from a small knapsack, little boy's lunch. And where are the disciples in this? Jesus just walked on water proving that he's God and they're not saying anything. 
And Jesus doesn't go, well, I'm a pretty big deal, and I don't know if you know that, but all 12 can authenticate that I walked on water last night. Look, I'll do it again. But we see what's true about God's heart is that we, we see that he's not seeking fame. In chapter 2, he rejects any false worship. At any point, he could do this, 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 and this, and he doesn't answer their question again. Jesus, what earthly benefit do you provide us in the here and now? What sign are you going to do to produce that you are the one we've been waiting for? That you're this quote-unquote bread that's to come? What sign are you going to give us? They go on to say, hey, verse 31, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. If you remember manna, everybody say manna. It means what is it? Moses goes to Pharaoh, Exodus, let my people go. They don't. Plagues. The final miracle, God parts the Red Sea. If you watch Prince of Egypt, there's a whale in the background. And they're walking and going, what is happening right now? Walls of water we're walking through. And they come to the other side and they begin to grumble. This nation of Israel begins to grumble because they long for the food of slavery. Which is so unthinkable, and yet if I pause and think about it, I do the exact same thing. And they grumble amongst themselves, well, at least when we were dejected and enslaved and beaten and persecuted, we had a pot of meat around us. And at least we ate. God, did you just bring us out here? More specifically, Moses, did you just bring us out of this horrible place to just let us die in this desert? And God responds by providing Krispy Kreme donuts from heaven. It's this bread-like substance that's sweetened with honey. And every day, for 40 years, some of you haven't even been alive for 40 years, for 40 years, day in and day out, a double portion on the night before the Sabbath so they didn't work and labor, food from heaven is provided. And the nation of Israel, we see that in Exodus 12, that we see that the number that have come through is numbered as 600,000 men plus women, women and children. Which means that at the most conservative estimate, that it's 1.66 million people that are fed daily for 40 years. So Jesus, that little trick with the lunch to the 5,000 family units was pretty cool. We'd love some more of that. We're hungry today. But Moses fed a nation for 40 years out of nothing. You turn loaves into fish to more, that was a cool party trick. We'd love to see that again. But from nothing came food and sustenance and provision and security and stability for all. So we need to see a better sign than what you just did. The rabbis would discuss with each other during that time that there was 
a, a later Messiah to come. And the later Messiah would come and call down manna from heaven. The, the first Messiah being Moses. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. The, the Passover lamb has come and we are safe and free and secure. And so a better Moses to come, a different Moses to come is going to feed us in a similar fashion. Jesus, if that's truly you, how are you going to outdo that? And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth. Some of your translations say, truly, truly, it's amen, amen. It's an, an emphatic statement of, it's the most secure thing I can say. It's trustworthy. You, I would take a bullet for this statement. Amen, amen, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father, not the Father, my Father, who gives, not gave, but it continually in perpetuity gives you this true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread you long for is temporal. It's an immediate, self-gratifying little shot of food to satiate. But you wake up hungry, as all of Israel did every day. They hungered off this food. And they all, surprise, surprise, they all die. So it sustained them for a little bit, but I'm offering an eternal bread. This, this bread that is infinitely superior. It has eternal significance and ramifications. It's a, it's a better bread. And the life that you're trying to just satisfy now and keep safe and secure, there's an eternal life. It's a it's a better life to come. A, a better bread, a better life, a, a better Moses. Would you please break up with Moses? There's a, a new covenant coming in and his language is starting to shift. There's a, a new way that you will interact with God. And there's a new way that God will interact with you, a once and for all sacrifice to come. It's a, it's a better Passover lamb. It's a better Moses, it's a better bread, it's a better life, it's a better salvation. He, he saved you from an oppressive people, but I'm saving you from the oppression of sin and the destruction and mastery of death. You'll have life and life eternal. Oh, you want this temporal bread, but I have bread for life, eternal life. It's eternally better. And it's given from my father. Moses was good, but he was just a messenger to say, here's this new bread. Here's this one that's better. He fulfills all law. He fulfills everything your heart's longing for. It's him. It's the Messiah, and here he is. And he switches the language from this bread and this substance to the person. It's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Next week, what we'll see is that he invites people to eat of this bread. It's considered sometimes Christian cannibalism. I'm sorry, you're saying eat of a person? But it's this person is the peace that you're longing for. This person is the, the sustenance that you're longing for. This, this person is the stability that you're longing for. It's found in the person from God that he has sent. Don't you want that bread? Doesn't that sound better than the little boy's lunch? 
Doesn't that sound infinitely greater than manna that's come down from the sky to your forefathers? Will they respond, yeah, sir, always give us this bread. Why wouldn't we want that? Sign me up. Okay, you're saying I don't have to work for it, but it's dispensed by the Son of Man. And it leads to an eternal life and eternal sustenance and sustainability and satiety. Yeah. And it's in a person. Yeah. Will always give us this bread. It's a similar response from the woman in Samaria that's sitting at the well and he gets into a dialogue with her and says in chapter 4 that uh, there's water that you'll never thirst from again. And for her, in her context, she says, well, give me this water so I don't have to come back here and draw from the well every day. It's a humiliating act because I'm a woman of questionable character. I'm doing it in the heat of day so that nobody notices I'm doing it. If you're saying there's a way that I never have to come back here, give me that water. Oh, it's not about water. It's about the living water, and I'm the living water. In the same way, give us that bread. You still have bread on the mind, and I'm telling you something shocking. And Jesus' response in verse 35 is, is interesting because it's inclusive and exclusive all at once. It's inviting and loving and offensive all at once. He says, I am. Moses meeting the I am in the bush. Jesus will say seven I am statements, and this is the first. I am that I am. I existed outside of time and space and at all creation that I was part of creation. I am that I am. And I'm the bread of life. Anyone who wants to come can eat of this bread. But there's no other bread that leads to eternal life. There's no other person that you'll find the life that I give. All can eat of it, but no one else has it. It's completely exclusive. It's not Moses. It's not heritage. It's not your socioeconomic status. It's not your intellect. It's belief in the Son. And you have this bread. And this person that I'm talking about, it's me. Here I am, right in front of you. Your deepest longings are right here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. There's a come to him and a believe in him. The simple gospel of I come and I believe, and I feast, and I never hunger, and I never thirst. You have your mind on temporal bread. I'm telling you there's eternal bread. And here he is, right in front of you. And yet, verse 37, or I'm sorry, verse 36. But as I have told you, you have seen me and you still not, do not believe. You've heard my words, you've seen my works, you've seen the, the testimonies about me. We talked about testimonies a few weeks ago of John the Baptist, of God the Father, of the works of Jesus, of Scripture, of Moses, all pointing to the word and works and the physical incarnate God right in front of them. And these acts point to him, they're in line with the God's heart and the Father's heart and will, and yet you don't see. I know you've seen, but you don't see because you still don't believe in the one that the Father has sent who comes and dispenses 
the bread of life that's eternal, and I'm telling you it's me, and yet you still don't believe. Your heart posture is not ready to receive me as rabbi, let alone king of kings and the son of God. You want bread, here it is, and yet you don't believe and you don't see. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Some, there's two things about this verse that we won't have time to get into. But there seems to be a case for election and predestination coming from this text. It's the Father who gives and wills and gives it to the Son. It's determined by the Father, those that come. And Jesus' response is, I receive. There's also some confusion in this text because there's a, a term, forgive me English majors if I say this wrong, it's a litetes. And a litetes is where you confirm something emphatically with a negative statement to emphasize the positive. An example of this is, how are you doing today? And you answer, not bad. That means doing good. Hey, I got dressed up for you today, church. How do I look? Not too shabby. I think that's good. You look nice today. Okay, good. A light to tease. He will come. I'll never drive away. Never was there a question of eternal security. If they're in my grasp, they come to me and I never drive away. Better said, it's all who will come, I will receive gladly. So for further study later, but that's a 25 cent little knowledge for you today. But I have come down from heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. Not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. We've seen this over and over again of Jesus. Listening to the Father there's authority and yet submission. There's a divine judge and there's this divine sovereignty that's expressed and demonstrated. There's this divine election that is coming up out of this. And God with all authority is submissive to the Father to model for us submission. I've come down from heaven and I only do what God wills. And if you ever wonder what God's will is, here's part of it. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's a divine election that comes up in this conversation, and there's a divine sovereignty that comes up. And there's an eschatological thing that comes up in end times. There's an end times reality that he draws from. In chapter 5, when he's confronted by the Jews that are opposed to him, he says that, I'm the judge and God has given me authority to judge. And, and at the last days at the judgment, I'll call up those out of their tombs. There's a reality of the implications that Jesus is thinking of and is mindful of and is pointing attention are far more than this temporal snack. There's a kingdom to come. There's an eternal life that awaits. There's a divine and sovereign God ruling and reigning at all times. 
And he wills that all would come and believe. In his heart that all would come. And if they're in my grasp, I'll never let them go. Come to me, believe in me. Never hunger or thirst again. I'm all that you long for. All that satisfies. The only thing that sustains. This bread of life. And here I am. For now, we end. We get to see the response next week. It's not great. I'll just let you know. But for now, Jesus, in this moment, in the synagogue in Capernaum, is leaving this crowd who was curious to answer the question far beyond a fish fillet. But to question, is this truly the Son of God? Is this truly the bread of life? Is there truly a new way of God working with man and man with God that is not based on works but is based on faith in the God who works? The question that they asked Jesus of show us a sign reminds me of Jesus at the cross. And at the scene of the cross, Jesus is standing and hanging on this cross and a crowd grows and the sign and laughter and mocking and scoffing is happening. And they say, if you're the king of the Jews and if you're really this Messiah that you claim to be, show us a sign. Come down off the cross and then we'll believe. All your other signs have led us to believe you're crazy and we can't wait to get you out of here. That's why you're on this cross. Oh, and Jesus, I'm so thankful that he does the will of the Father and not his own. I'm so thankful that his sight was not on the temporal pain and suffering and shame and humiliation and dejection that he was receiving in that moment but that he quietly endures fulfilling the will of the Father to say, look to the Son and believe and have life. Not about fame for himself, but about glory for the kingdom to come. Not focus on the temporal, but focus on the eternal significance of him saying it is finished, and it is finished. In offering resurrection, and who doesn't want resurrection this morning? As we pray for the Nichols, who doesn't want resurrection and long for that and celebrate that? Oh, I can't wait. If that trumpet blows, I'm the first one out. Like, I can't wait. But there's resurrection in my life that I need today while still here. The reminder of the goodness of God, that he's the sustainer and provider. Oh, I forget that. Anybody else forget that? He offers resurrection, so he willingly endures. He doesn't listen to the crowd. And thus, we're here today talking about him, celebrating the life that comes. As John comes up, I want to leave you with four questions today to consider. 
The first is this. How do you come to Jesus today? How do you come to Jesus? Are you looking for the miracle? Are you coming full of faith? Are you waiting for a sign? Or if you're saying you're greater than any sign that you'll ever show? Are you longing for that temporal food? Or are you saying the eternity that awaits? I can't wait. How do you come to Jesus today? The second, have you seen and still don't believe? Like this crowd that comes to Jesus, have you seen and still don't believe? You've hung around and you've explored the things of faith, but you're going, there's no way he fed those people. There's no way he walked on that water. He's a good guy, he's a good teacher, but there's no way he is the son of God who came down in the flesh and dwelt among us. Have you seen and you still don't believe? I implore you to come and see that there's life in him. Take the step to come and believe. For others, faith is wavering. The things of life start going, I'm not sure you're that good, God. I know you can sustain over here, but I'm not sure about this over here. And I'm wavering. I've seen, but I'm starting to not believe, and disbelief is creeping in. And the call to remembrance is that he's well-equipped to care for you today. What's the source of your deepest satisfaction this morning? Where do you place your hope and confidence in this morning? Is your hope for the offerings of the temporal bread that the world offers you today? And you place your confidence, your desire, your satisfaction in those things. God, if you could just give us a house in Encinitas. God, if you could just give us a new car. God, if you could just give us a perfect pregnancy. God, if you could just give us perfect health. God, if you could just give me that raise. God, if you could just come through here. God, if you could just do this. God, if you could do this. Amen. Some of you, that's your journal this morning. It can be mine at times too. Is it in the temporal offerings of this world or do we say, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer for he has overcome the world. And this is cool, but this is a moment and a vapor, and I can't wait for eternity with him. So my deepest satisfaction is found in Jesus, and I can't wait to be with him. Greater than any status or elevation or accoutrement of life, it's found in him. Where is your deepest source of satisfaction this morning? Have you seen and still don't believe? How do you come to Jesus today? And lastly, are you still trying to earn and work towards the things of God? Jesus, tell us the work that we need to do to know that we are okay with you. Is it more prayer? Is it more giving? Is it more faithful attendance? Is it more Bible studies? Is it more this, 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 fill in the blank? Break up with Moses. 
break up with law, embrace the new covenant this morning, and hear the words of Jesus. Look to the Son and believe. No work, no effort, no striving. Jesus did all that for us so that we could look to the Son and believe. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to look to the Son and believe. We're going to sing of our faith this morning. I hope of what we sing in these next moments, you direct your attention to Him. And we bless Him as a church. And because John's so good, I'm going to play drums with him because it's just fun. So let's sing.